<clears throat> to continue this beautiful time of worship, I invite you to keep your Bibles open to the passage we have just read. Message today will be framed in a bit more of a Hebrew context, and that is why we are using an Old Testament scripture as our springboard. Title of the message this morning is simply Bearing His Image. Bearing the image of God or of Jesus Christ. And we'll focus on verse 7. And thank you, John, for reading that scripture so well. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. <clears throat> so the burden of the message this morning is not so much about the use of profanity, let's say, or how we would often think of misusing the name of God, but rather to destroy or to discredit or to misrepresent who God is in any way. Now, that's a high calling, is it not? Actually, in the context of this verse, not only is it a high calling, a tremendous opportunity, but there's a serious consequence connected with failing to come to that high standard. And we want to talk about that this morning. God has always called his people to identity. And our lesson this morning from Genesis 20 is no exception to that, is it? A beautiful preface to the message today. Throughout the Old Testament, God has always called his people to identity in various ways. And, and we won't enlarge on that for now. But if we go over into the New Testament, for example... And we broaden that circle to include, let's say, the Sermon on the Mount. We will find there that Jesus clearly defines his kingdom. And he defines how it works. He defines rather clearly what participants in his kingdom, who they are, how they live their lives, and so on. Just a few examples there in Matthew 5 we could just point out. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And, and the idea there is, is righteous, godly, or yes, selig, are those who are empty of self and come under the complete control of another. To be empty of myself and come under the control of the other means that I live my life different. I answer to a different king. I participate in a different kingdom. It's the idea of bearing the image, the identity, the representation of that kingdom. And there's others there. The idea of being a peacemaker, being at peace with myself, with my brother, with my God, and so on. And then if we bounce back into Acts, I found it rather interesting. We have the example there of Saul, 
when he became converted. Today we talk about terrorism. Saul was a terrorist of his day. Um, and he was struck down. You know the story there in uh, Acts 9, verses 10 through 15. We have that beautiful story. But my point here is that the angel of the Lord, I believe it says, comes to the man Ananias, and he said, I want you to go into the city and meet this man. Because he is what? A chosen vessel to bear my name. He's a chosen vessel to bear my name to kings and to the Gentiles and those people. Saul is not alone here. We may not identify ourselves as terrorists, but I'm sure we can all identify as people that have come to the light. I hope we can. And that have chosen to follow Jesus Christ and consequently step in line to bear his name even as Saul was called to do. And then later, one more scripture in 1 Peter 2.9 where it says, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Why? That we should show forth the praises of him who has called us out of darkness to walk in his marvelous light and to exemplify righteousness in that way. It's the call of the church today. Our world is broken. <clears throat> there are people, and lots of them, that are looking for answers. They're looking for good answers. They're looking for trustworthy answers. They're looking for truth. Sometimes we get into situations. I'm thinking just now of an example. We're in Iraq. We're sitting in, a, in an IDP camp. And there are people that are asking about who really are you? It's a question that often came up. Who really are you? Because there's this, this little cloud on their face. And I know they're not understanding because the Americans are over there working in cooperation with the Iraqi army to kill people. Oh yes, of course, they're fighting a war with ISIS, but they're Americans. And you say, that's who you are. I say, yes, America is where my plane flew from. I live there when I'm at home. Yes, I am an American, but beyond that, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, and we begin to explain. Suddenly the cloud lifts and they come to understand. Oh, so America. Christians from America, America not Christian. Okay? Opens a door for tremendous opportunity to help them understand. So we go to Homa, Louisiana. My wife and I go out to where a great big tree has fallen on the end of a house and crushed it. And the family, the husband and his wife that are there are very sad that they're in trouble. Uh, it's, uh, life is very difficult for them at this point. The city, Homa, has come and condemned their house. They said, we're going to take it all away. And it's the place where they lived. It was theirs. They paid for it. The memories are there and all of that. And we go there to minister to them or attempt to as 
chaplains and we, we go out there and I see this track hoe sitting at the end of the house. He's already started to take this thing down. Got a great big jaw on the arm. You know what they look like. They just reach in and they reduce a house or something to a pile of sticks. And there was a young man there, about 20 years old. Strong young man, had tattoos kind of plastered around here and there. And, and, and as we were wanting to uh, minister and interact with the couple that was there, they, at some point, and I'm, I'm sort of hopping through this story. It, it's too long for today. I'll talk to you another time about that. But as we're there, the couple left for a little bit. They got in their pickup and drove away. And we're left standing there with this young man. He's a total stranger to me. It was a warm day. The sun was beating down on us. And he steps over to me and he says, Who really are you? Who really are you? And I said, well, uh, this question uh, is interesting to me. I could answer it different ways. I could say maybe I am an American. I could say maybe I'm Mennonite. Maybe I could say I'm whatever. But I said I, I choose to say that I am a follower of Jesus Christ. You know what the next question was that he asked? He said, how do I go about to make my wrongs right? That question had nothing to do with running a track hole. That question had nothing to do with his job to take the rest of that house down and put it in a pile of rubble beside the street. It had nothing to do with that. And he asked, what do I need to do to make my wrongs right. I say that for the glory of God. But what made him ask? And I said, tell you what, the sun was beating down. I said, let's talk about it. And we picked up something that was laying there. I don't remember, a box or something. I said, let's go over under the tree. And he said, well, your wife needs to come too. She's wise. I said, I understand that. We'll invite her along. And so we go, we sit under the tree. And there we begin to help him understand how to go about to make his wrongs right. I take him back to the garden. And again, the story is too long. But we go back to the garden. And I, and I introduce him to uh, the, the relationship that man had with God in the beginning and how it was broken, just to give him understanding. And then we page through. And I had maybe, maybe I had 20 minutes there. Uh, to tell him a, a long story in short. And so then I, I explained to him how that God asked for sacrifice, the shedding of blood. And we, we began to look at that. I wanted to give him a picture of the, of, of the Bible, you know, the, the big picture of how to go about to make wrongs right. And I explained to him how the, the blood of animals was what God called for back then, but that blood could not take the sin away. It could cover, but it didn't take it away. And, and I tell him the story, and then we come into the New Testament, and I tell him about the perfect lamb whose blood was shed to take away the sins of the world. It's God's provision. It's God's way for you to be able to make your wrongs right. It's tremendous. I come back to the question, who really are you? 
My question to us today, and I hope you're pondering this as we go, and I'm going to wear that out in the lesson today because I don't want you to go away from here uh, wondering what the, what the emphasis was today. The importance of bearing the image of God to the point that anybody can walk up to you and say, who really are you with the intent of wanting to understand answers for life? that really, really matter. That list goes on. I'd love to tell you a story about the man Ibrahim. Maybe I just will, very quickly. In Israel, we go down the street. A man is standing in the door of his shop. And I come walking up to him, and we begin conversation. And the story, the, uh, the idea, you know, religion, just, it's, just, it's just where the discussion goes. And we begin to talk. And he says, so you're a Christian. I say, what's that? Oh, well, you're, oh, yeah, okay. And so we, we begin to talk. I could have said yes, I chose not to, because what I wanted was a bit of understanding. I wanted to hear from him what he knew or thought he knew and all, so we could dialogue. And then as we were talking, again, very abbreviated, he said, so Christian, Seems to me I've heard of, of this, uh, let's see, yeah, the, the born-again kind. I said, really? The born-again kind? That sounds strange. Who are they? How does that work? Well, he didn't really know. I said, I think we need to talk about it. Okay, entering the conversation. And so the question is, uh, who really are you? And then we start talking about this born-again kind, and then he really wondered, because that's, Pretty strange, pretty strange doctrine. He was not a believer. <clears throat> All right, let's go on then back into the context here. And we want to notice a few key words from the context of our study in Exodus 20 and verse 7. First of all, it mentions the name, the name of the Lord thy God. That name, as I understand it, means a definite or conspicuous position. A definite or a conspicuous position or an identity with, in this case, the Lord personal, my personal God. Okay? With the Lord thy God. And I, I take from this that there is, a, there is an internal relationship that exemplifies itself externally. I think that's really, really important. Let's look at a couple of examples in context. So in, uh, in the context of our study, take for example in verse 2, it says that I am the Lord thy God which brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And so verse 2 helps us to understand this idea of bearing the name, which is a definite or a conspicuous position. Israel was in Egypt, but they weren't to stay there. They weren't to adopt the ways of the Egyptians. They weren't to get involved in their vanities and all of that. The plan of God was to bring them out of Egypt. Out of Egypt have I called my son. It's still God's plan today to bring us out of Egypt, 
out of bondage, away from those things. Don't adopt the heathen culture, their lifestyle, and those kind of things. There's another, verses 3 through 5. We have an identity in worship. Uh, and I'm not going to reread these <clears throat> verses, but you can see there an identity in worship. Worship this morning is to encounter the Word of God with the full intention to obey it. Now, there's other forms of worship. We were singing this morning, beautiful form of worship. But one of the highest forms of worship is to encounter the Word of God with the full intention to obey it. And then there's another, 8 through 11. I notice the call to identity in work ethic. It's here. It talks about when to work and when not to work and so on. You can read that again. It uh, talks about priorities. It talks about business. Actually, it deals with everyday life. A little story. So we're in Fredonia, Kentucky. Tornado had gone through. And we go to see a man. We come to his house. He said, I need to show you something. We go in, and he takes us back. And in the back part of his house, there was a large window that had blown in. Tremendous tornado there. And the window had blown in, and the pressure on the inside the house had pushed a wall out on the other side. And so he took us to his living room, and there was a piece of wall, 12 foot long. It was back in place now when we came, because we were there to do the sign-up. The, the, the sign off, the follow-up uh, for the project that had been done for him. And I said, tell me your story. And so he said, well, this window blew in, this wall blew out. And he said, I didn't know if it could be fixed or not. Actually, he said the top was blown out. Maybe the only thing that was holding it was the wires that were connecting from uh, through the ceiling and down to the wall, kept it from going out. And he said, so I, I had these, these men... Uh, yeah, they were uh, rapid response people. Yeah, uh, they came here and they said, we, we think we can help you. We want to help you with this. And he said, and, and it, was, uh, it was so um, fascinating, the man, his, his actions and everything. And he said, so this, these men came and he said, I had the inspector here because he had to make sure that it gets done right and that it's going to pass, you know, to not redo my house, just fix the wall, okay. And he said, uh, so this man, he was inside, and, and uh, he had a big hat, and he had a big beard. He said he was a wonderful, he was a, a wonderful character, and he knew what he was doing. He had the, spec, the inspector beside him, and he said he was there watching, and there was a man outside on a skid loader, and he was gently pushing this wall back, and he said, they pushed that in. I was standing there watching. They pushed it in, and he said, this man knew just what he was doing. He told him a little more. Finally, that wall was right in place. He told him to stop, and they nailed that wall back in place. They fixed it up, and he said, when it was all done, he said, they, they, they walked away, and they blessed me, and he said, I tried to give them something. They wouldn't take anything. <clears throat> who are they? He said, that kind of thing is not in the book. I said, well, maybe it is. Let's talk about it a little bit. I said, you know what? If Jesus would have been here, he would have fixed that wall, could have, probably would have, 
maybe he wouldn't have used a skid loader. Maybe he would have just touched it or reached for something. But at any rate, there would have been a solution for your need. I said, we are followers of Jesus Christ. And we attempt to do it the way we believe he would do it if he were right here in your house. Bearing his image in business, in work ethic, and so on. <clears throat> well, then I notice uh, another. There's, uh, there's the family that's mentioned here. Family structure and order and, and, and purpose and, and the propagation of, of godly seed. And I'm going to touch on that just a little bit later. Isaiah 43.1 says it this way. In my own words, now I'm abbreviating. I have created you. I have formed you. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. You belong to me. Is it not only right that somehow, by his grace, we attempt to bear his image and do so accurately? <clears throat> the bearing of an image has skin on Moses, for example, he chose to what? Identify. Identify with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Abraham chose to be a pilgrim and a stranger. He had a unique identity. I remember wandering around Israel and seeing the Bedouin camps out there. I think, that's, I think Abraham was a, was a Bedouin. It was a pretty... Uh, <clears throat> Obvious who he was, I think, dwelt in tents and so on, because he was looking for a city that had foundations whose builder and maker was God. <clears throat> and then there's Noah, perfect in his generation, and we know what that story looked like. Let's go on. So I notice the word vain in the context of our study. Let's look at it. Vain in context means to leave a false impression or misrepresentation. To leave a false impression or representation. A story. There's a businessman in New York. He has a company, big company, and he has an office up on the seventh floor of a big building. He also has a daughter who is a very influential part of that company. And uh, one morning, she comes to work, and uh, she bumps into the, uh, comes to the uh, security man that's at the door, and she's rude, and she demands of him, go get for me something to eat, maybe coffee or something. It probably was, maybe not, but at any rate, and the security guard says, but, but I, I can't leave my post. I'm responsible to guard this door. It's important. She interrupts and demands that he go, so he does. He obeys her, he goes and gets the treat for her, brings it back, gives it to her, and without thanking him, she takes off for her office. As she rounds the corner to go to the elevator, she bumps into a secretary that's coming with her arm full of papers. She's going to get them bound for a meeting. The papers go on the floor and scatter around and she attempts to pick them up, and about that time, 
The daughter says, forget the papers. I want you to go clean my office. I have something special going there today. And the secretary begins to object. But the daughter says, do as I say. So she did. And she neglects her duty and she obeys. Throughout the day, the daughter was rude, unkind, thoughtless. And people all over that company were saying, I wonder what the boss is like. I wonder what the boss on the seventh floor is like. They didn't know. All we know is what his daughter is like. Let's turn the story around to the other way. So the boss's daughter comes to work, and she meets the security guard, and she says, good morning. You started work early this morning. You probably haven't had anything to eat. How about I go get you your morning coffee and a sweet? And she takes off and is soon back. She gives him what she brought, and she takes off to go to her office. Once again, she rounds the corner to the elevator and bumps into the secretary that's got the arm full of papers. And again, they scatter on the floor. With that, she is very apologetic, and she picks up the papers and helps to organize them and even volunteers to go get them bound for the meeting that the secretary was preparing for. All day long, she's helpful and she's kind. And actually, she hears comments throughout the day. Wonder what the boss on the seventh floor is like. All we know is what the daughter is like. The Bible talks about sons and daughters, okay? And I hope you're making a connection here. And so at the end of the day, the daughter makes her way to the top of the elevator. And as she steps out where her father has his office, he comes to meet her and he says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have borne my image today. You have borne my image today. Now, don't misunderstand. God is not the boss on the seventh floor. All analogies have limitations. I mean, you're understanding that. <clears throat> Another scripture <clears throat> as we move on. Genesis 1.26, And God said, and I quote, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. I hope you're noticing the pronouns here. <clears throat> and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them, and God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. A couple of other passages in passing that mention the idea of the image and glory of God. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 7. For God in, uh, I'm sorry, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is what? The image and the glory of God. But the woman is the glory of the man. Genesis 9, 6. 
One final scripture there. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Once again, for in the image of God made he man. Now, I don't want to take any of these scriptures out of their context. I'm just shining a little light on a few passages that mention that idea of specifically being created to bear his image. Let's look at it a bit more closely. You noticed with me as we read that there's a plural, there's there's a triune meaning here. Let us, our image, our likeness, and them. Image, as it's used here, simply means a resemblance and consequently a representative figure of. Resemblance and consequently a representative figure of. And so we have a triune meaning here. Let's look at it. First of all, there would be Father God or God the Father. John 1.1 will refer to briefly. There it says that in the beginning was the Word. And the Word, I'm sorry, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Verse 4, and in him was life, and the life was the light of men. We could, with profit, read that entire scripture. It says, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. After and with that knowledge of all things, God gives the opportunity and the responsibility to a man. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John in this case. There's more Johns here this morning, yeah? Verse 7, the same came for a witness. He came for a witness to bear witness of the light. To bear the image, the resemblance and consequently be a representative figure of the light that all men through him might believe. That's tremendous. It's the call. I'm sorry. It's the call for the church today that all men through him might believe. And the word was made flesh. And yes, it dwelt among us talking about Christ, and we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Secondly, there is God the Son. There's God the Father, God the Son. The call is to model his life, his character, his heart, his methodology, his righteousness, and so on. An example I'm thinking about John the Baptist is down at the Jordan, and he's baptizing. And Jesus is coming, new in his ministry, and he approaches the Jordan, and he communicates with John as he's down there. And he is coming to be baptized. Jesus is coming to be baptized. And John, you know what happened. John, John withstood that. He forbade him, and he said, I I have need to be baptized of you. I'm not even worthy to untie your shoe. And you're coming to me to be baptized. And notice what Jesus said. Suffer it to be so now. 
for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. That's amazing. And so here we have a man and Jesus Christ, and together they are the fulfillment of righteousness. Now, Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of righteousness. We know that is. But he called a man into cooperation with himself to be the fulfillment of righteousness. It is the call to the church today is my injunction. Then there's God the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to just mention this for, for the sake of our time this morning. God the Holy Spirit. If we were to go to Galatians 5 and study verse 19 through 25, we would find there the contrast of the works of the flesh, which are manifest, which are these. And there's a list there, a dark list, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, and all of those things, the works of the flesh, contrasted by the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, faith, temperance. And so, so we have this contrast here. In the beginning, God said, let us make man in our image. And let's give him the assignment to do it our way, to have dominion over the fish of the sea and, and so on to exemplify who we are. <clears throat> what a call. And so from this, my takeaway is that man is called to impact the world with the purpose of his own creation. We are called to impact the world with the purpose of the creation of God. These things are not abstract ideas, are they? No, they describe the kingdom of Christ. They define the church. They define who God is. What a high call. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. We might ask the question, so how can I bear the image of one I haven't seen? John 1.18 says it this way, no man has seen God at any time, the only begotten of the Son, which is in the bosom of the Father. He hath declared him. He hath revealed him. He hath shown to us who God is as followers of Jesus Christ, followers of his methods of his character of his righteousness the infilling of his spirit followers of that we are able to declare something of who he is to effectively bear his image now to bear the image of god as we're defining it today is counter to the carnal man is it not it goes against it goes against my nature. And you know, that has, that's an idea that's as old as time. Go back to Genesis 3, for example. Satan introduces this idea. You can be wise. 
You don't need to do what God says. And for the sake of the message this morning, we'll say, you don't need to bear the image of God. You can do it a different way. After all, you can be wise. You can do it your way. And so on. These are ideas that came from Satan himself. Maybe, just maybe, there are questions that we wrestle with. Probably not at Weavertown, but maybe. Ideas like, why should I, why should I be restricted to live my life with God's call? The, the call that God has. Maybe that path seems narrow. I'm going to suggest that maybe it is. Maybe it is. But the path that's straight and that's narrow is wide with freedom and blessing and grace and opportunity and all that goes with it. <clears throat> I believe that conflict still rages today. In the final moments of our message this morning, I want to take us to Matthew 25. And we want to look just briefly at that very conflict that we just introduced now. <clears throat> Matthew 25. I'm not going to read this passage, but I invite you to visualize as we uh, look at three scenarios. <clears throat> Examples of kingdom conflict that are still present with us today. The first one, and there's three of them here. Matthew 25, the first part there, verse 1 through 13, we have the picture uh, and the illustration of the kingdom of heaven being like unto a wedding. <clears throat> and it's clear. There, there was, a, and uh, I can identify with this because we observed a wedding in uh, Israel one time. Uh, so the, the culture sort of comes alive here. But uh, so they're waiting, and they've got lamps, and they've got oil, and they're waiting. They didn't know when the bridegroom was coming, but they were to be watching for him, and they were to be ready to go with him when he came. And the story goes that uh, five of these virgins were wise, and five were foolish. Five had <clears throat> prepared themselves and their lamps, and five had not. And yes, sure enough, the bridegroom came, and those that were ready went with him, and those that weren't ready did not. <clears throat> all of these virgins knew the culture. They all knew the expectation. They all knew they needed a lamp. They all knew they needed oil. They all knew that they needed to wait. They all knew that oil gets all unless it's replenished. <laughs> it runs out. They knew all about this. Five prepared themselves and five didn't. My point here is that there was appearance without content. Appearance without content. It's a subtle trick of Satan 
to attempt to bear the image of God on the outside, but not have prepared with oil inside. <clears throat> the church is to be ready. She's to be waiting. Her charter is to match her groom and so on. It's a, it's a tremendous lesson there. 1 John 3, 2 says it this way, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We shall be like him then because we've identified with him here. <clears throat> we have effectively borne his image here. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Now we have the next section, the talents. So we have the businessman, the master, that calls his servants. He delivers to them talents. He delivers to them goods. And he goes into a far country. Somehow, it seems like these people that receive the talents had some kind of idea what the master wanted. And he even told them, I'm going, I'm giving you this goods, and I want you to do something productive, something valuable, something worthwhile with what I've given you. Because I'm coming back, and I'm going to ask account of you. Okay? Um, do we see how this ties in with our subject this morning. They were the master's own servants. It was the master's goods. It was the master's abilities that enabled them to get more. Yes, <clears throat> it all had to do with the master. And so, for whom did the first gain five more? For the master. And the other two, once again, for the master. The third one had a different idea. His idea was, so why should I bear the image of my master? Why should I do anything that's good for him? He hasn't done anything for me. Um, he's a hard master. He reaps where he didn't sow. He, he comes to gather where he didn't labor for and all, and yet he's asking me to do this? No, no, I won't do that. I won't identify with this man, and he didn't. <clears throat> and we know the consequences of what happened there. First Peter 4.10 says, As every man hath received the gift, and we have even so, minister the same one to another as good stewards, managers, employees, overseers of the manifold grace of God. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. <clears throat> Let's just look briefly now at the last section. And this is a picture of, of the judgment. Jesus explains how that the, uh, there, there will be a time here when sheep will be divided from the goats and there's going to be a, a separation 
and there's going to be consequence or reward for, for life and for responsibility. And I, I, I'm going to just mention here very quickly the, the words <clears throat> that Jesus gave to those who were faithful and those who were not. Notice with me there in verse uh, 35 where, where Jesus said that there were those that were hungry and ye gave. I was thirsty and ye gave. I was, uh, let's see, I was a stranger and ye took. I was naked and ye clothed. I was sick and ye visited. I was in prison and ye came. What those people were doing is exactly what Jesus would have done in that situation. This was the situation. This is what you did. They effectively bore the image of the master of Jesus Christ. And they're labeled as righteous. And then the conversation goes on. Let's just jump down to verse, uh, verse 41. And then shall he also say to them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Notice the words now that follow. For I was, and ye gave me no. In other words, I was, and you didn't. I was thirsty, and you didn't. I was a stranger, and once again, you didn't. I was naked, and you didn't. I was in prison, and you didn't. Sobering words from our context say, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. <clears throat> and the difference between the two was as obvious as sheep and goats, light, darkness, kingdom of Christ, kingdom of this world, and that list could go on. I want to just highlight that our faith and the way we live our lives must be inseparably one and the same. Our faith and how it's lived must be one and the same. And if that is the case, we can be witnesses the way we read in John 1. <clears throat> we bear something. What perspective does the world around me have of my Father in heaven because of the way I live my life, because of the way that I bear his image? What an opportunity to be called to bear the image of our creator God. Let's do so effectively by the word of God and the help of each other. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18 says, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass 
the glory of the Lord are changed from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And may the Lord, when he comes, find his servants here and everywhere else so doing. Would you kneel to pray? Yes. pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father,